Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. It's a powerful passage we come to this morning, and it it has led me this past week to be thinking a lot about endings and beginnings, because we see both. Last night, I was at a wedding celebration. Beautiful day for an outdoor ceremony, but it was for a wedding that, by all rights, should never have happened. The man is Syrian, the woman Iraqi, immigrants, and Muslim and Mandean by birth. And if you don't know anything about Mandeans, and I didn't, it's this very small ethnic religious group following, in theory, John the Baptist. And they are, they, these two, Khalil and Afra, were brought together by the glorious providence of God, and they are now here in this country and following Jesus because of the faithfulness of a couple from our Aurora campus and because of the power of Jesus. Beginnings. But today I am also feeling the weight of endings. Because on Friday, my friend Larry passed away. And Larry had been battling cancer. His son John is a pretty good friend of mine. And Larry and my wife Loretta were buddies, hockey buddies. They loved talking Blackhawks together. And one of the last times they were able to get together, we were actually at Larry's grand, uh, hockey game for Larry, one of Larry's grandsons. And John and I were sitting about eight rows in front of my wife and Larry, watching them talk and just have a great time. And that was just before he was diagnosed with cancer. Larry was a great guy, and he's gone too soon. And I will miss him. My wife will miss him, does miss him more. Something of a father she never had in many ways. But I know that death is not the end of Larry's story. And so today's passage in chapter 19, in the beginning of chapter 20, feels very appropriate to me this week. And last week, Pastor Jeremy reminded us that Jesus' death meant that it is finished. Clearing our record and completing our salvation And in any other story, chapter 19, the very first part of what we saw this morning, would be the end of the story, right? The burial, the aftermath, that funeral scene in the movie, probably in the rain, and then a few words after. But Jesus' story doesn't end there. The story that we saw begins late Friday afternoon before sundown at the burial, and ends on Sunday morning with an empty tomb. And I cannot state just how important these two events are are for our faith. You see, without them, Christianity does not exist. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity doesn't get off the ground. It will be a small Jewish movement that will peter out within years, maybe a decade. 
More importantly, everything that we claim as a Christian, as Christians, would be a sham. And last week, Pastor Jeremy talked about 1 Corinthians 15, which contains what most scholars believe is the oldest creed of Christianity in verses 3 and 4. Probably originated within two years of Jesus' death. Paul says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. First importance, he says. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the actions of Jesus on our behalf. And I pray this morning that we would see your heart more clearly as we look at this passage and that we would learn to live in light of who you are and what you've done for us. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning I want us to look at three aspects of Jesus' death and resurrection from our passage. And the first is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus are facts, not fantasy. If you were to fly to Auckland, New Zealand, North Island, and take a car ride about two hours, you would come to a very interesting place. Rolling green hills, farms, a small village. It's a tourist attraction, actually. And the place is called Hobbiton, a real but not real village. This is the movie set for the famous Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies by Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson's interpretation of Tolkien's picturesque home of Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. I love the Lord of the Rings. I first read The Hobbit in fourth grade, and I've been trying to get back to Middle Earth and Hobbiton ever since. But as great as Tolkien's work is, as fun as it would be to see Hobbiton, I know it's a fantasy. I know it's not real. And sometimes I wonder if we don't unconsciously think of the stories of the Bible sort of like that movie set. They are stories, after all. They're written down in ways that we will remember them. But sometimes we get this idea that story equals untrue, which is not the way that it goes at all. Or perhaps you sometimes feel like there is Bible history, and then there's real history or world history. They're sort of in two different buckets in your mind. You know, Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David are over here. And then there's the stuff you learned in school about Egypt and the Greeks and the Romans. So wait, it's a little bit of connection there, isn't there? And a couple of weeks ago when I was here, and most of you weren't because it's summertime, uh, I mentioned that at the very same time the Roman Empire is going on, right here in our passage, the greatest empire the world knows, there's another empire that most of us have never heard of that was equally as big. The Han Dynasty in China was every bit as big, and at the very same time. And I brought it up mostly to remind us 
that the Bible takes place in the real world, in real history, and we need to be reminded of that. And this story of the death and resurrection of Jesus is fact, not fantasy. And John includes details about the death and resurrection of Jesus that remind us this is not a legend. This is not a story where belief means something that a story that I would like to be true but I know isn't. You see, John includes both evidence and eyewitnesses. Names and specific details about both the burial practices of the Jews and what happened afterwards. In other words, John includes just the sorts of things that we require in courtrooms even today to show that something is true. And many want to deny the reality of Jesus' death, or more typically, the resurrection. And those are not new claims. There is one theory called the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. He fainted or went into a coma, or maybe he was given drugs to, as a ruse to get him off the cross. And that's been around since at least 1780, at least. Coolness of the tomb somehow revives him because those primitives simply didn't know how death worked. Of course, the problem with that is Romans were experts at capital punishment. I mean, they believed in it and they practiced it daily throughout the empire. They knew when a person died. And the average ancient person probably knew better than the average person today in the 21st century what death looked like because they lived with it every day. And what do we do? We move it to hospitals or hospices so that we don't have to deal with it. They knew what was going on. And the details of the burial process that John includes, the embalming techniques, those spices, and the tomb itself are important historical details that show us the story is true. He was buried immediately, verse 42 tells us, because it's preparation day. The, sa- the Sabbath is coming up. And they can't leave him on the, on the cross. And the amount of myrrh and aloes that are, are referenced, they, in the, the video, what was it, 35, 34, 35 kilograms, it's about 65 to 75 pounds was actually staggering. And what they they would do is they would mix these together and in between layers they would spread out this. It was to keep the smell down. Okay? But that amount would not be used. There was uh, one other reference I found for the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel who we actually meet in Acts at the beginning of the book of Acts He was a highly revered Jewish rabbi and leader, and historical records say that they used 80 pounds of spices for him. Similar amount. But it was staggering. You see, the details of that, the details of the empty tomb, the way that it it worked, show us that something unexpected, something extraordinary happened here. And the responses of Mary and Peter and John show us that the disciples did not expect Jesus to rise. Ancient people knew that resurrections didn't happen. The Greeks 
in particular, believed it would never happen. But this empty tomb and these empty burial clothes, pregnant with spices, remind us that not long ago, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And you know what, he had, what they had to do? They had to take the burial clothes off of him, but not Jesus. No, something happened, and that much is clear. This is not fantasy. Tradition says that every disciple other than John was martyred. And people do not die for what they know to be a lie. And the evidence is strong. Even skeptics agree something happened. And the eyewitnesses are important. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. And given what John has told us throughout the first 19 chapters of the book of John so far, these are not exactly who we would expect as the kind of people you want to be eyewitnesses. Two secret disciples afraid to publicly acknowledge Jesus, a former demon-possessed woman who had supported Jesus in ministry in Galilee, and she had been at the cross and had seen where the burial had taken place, but she's a woman. And with her background, would she have been considered reliable? And the denier, Peter, John, the beloved disciple, probably the youngest of the twelve, would any of these have been the people that you would have chosen to be eyewitnesses if you were making this up? No, you don't choose them unless they actually saw something. And from the earliest times, people sought to undermine them. Matthew records that the, the Sanhedrin, they bribed the guards to say that the disciples had stolen the body. The same disciples who had scattered and denied? Women who could not testify in court? No. That's not what this shows. And when we read the book of Acts, it's clear that something shifts, especially in Peter and John. Something has changed them all. This is fact, not fantasy, because the death and resurrection of Jesus aren't just facts. They are the fulcrum of history. If you've ever been on a teeter-totter, you know what a fulcrum is, right? It's the center point, the thing on which everything balances, the lever. And the death and resurrection of Jesus are the center point of human history. Everything before and everything after moves in reference to it. Everything has been building to this moment. And we see it throughout this passage in chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. On Friday, there is sorrow and grief. Two rich and powerful men are burying Jesus in a brand new tomb. And that matters because tombs were not for one person. They were for families. And Sunday before dawn, a woman goes to the tomb in grief. But the stone has been rolled away and he is gone. They have taken him, she is afraid. And so she goes to Peter and John they have taken our Lord, and we don't know where they've taken Him. And they come running, bewildered, but we see the seeds of belief. You see, this is no ordinary event. 
This is the event that changes everything for everyone for all time. If you have kids in school, you might be familiar with a change that's happened in the last decade. B.C. and A.D. have been replaced with B.C.E. and C.E. before Common Era and Common Era. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy not because it's trying to be politically correct and include people who are not Christians. I'm not worried about that. But because it's untrue. You see, it denies a fundamental reality. Bishop Usher, who came up with the dating system that we use, might have gotten his dates a bit wrong. I think he did. But there's no question that he is referencing Jesus as his reference point. And so BCE and CE are academic fiction that denies that fundamental truth. You see, Jesus is the fulcrum of history. And as an aside, it's not even remotely accurate anyway, because the year 1 AD does not reflect the beginning of any sort of common era. If you wanted to go to the beginning of a common era and had to do it at that time, you would say maybe 27 AD with the founding of Rome. But the Han Dynasty would like a word. Because... There were far more people in China at the time. And they might ask, aren't you being fairly Eurocentric in your approach? And they would be right. Arguably, a true common era of world history doesn't begin until December 12, 1901, when Marconi first transmitted a radio signal across the Atlantic. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection are the fulcrum of history. Nations and empires have risen and fallen, but the church of Jesus Christ has endured. Sometimes I feel like we are not doing a particularly good job of keeping it up, but it has endured. And John's gospel has been building to this. And last week, Pastor Jeremy talked about the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus and the astronomical odds. And there's a reason why Jesus' burial or Jesus is, splits history. And Jesus' burial fulfills another prophecy because Isaiah 53, 9 says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked, dies in between two criminals, and with the rich in death. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. It was a rich man's tomb, an unused tomb in a garden probably an olive grove not unlike the one he was arrested in a day before. You see, Jesus splits history. He is the fulcrum of history. And today, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre stands on probably what is the place of that tomb. But the tomb is empty. And Isaiah 53 says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what Isaiah said about the suffering servant. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as Pastor Jeremy talked about, just after reciting that earliest of creeds, explains why the death and resurrection of Jesus is so central. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, this is not a new thing. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who are Also who are fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead comes through also through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in this order, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him, put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. If Jesus does not die, if Jesus does not resurrect, there is no hope. There is no new covenant. There is no Christianity. And frankly, we are wasting our time on a beautiful Sunday morning. Jesus is the God-man who sacrifices himself for us because we could not. He's not some divine child sacrifice of a mean and bloodthirsty God. He is the one who is, as he has said, one with the Father in a way that we struggle to begin to understand. And he willingly rescues us. And John has shown us time and again that Jesus was in control, in charge of every aspect, from his arrest to the illegal and rigged trials, and even his death. He gives up his spirit, we are told, for us. Because he is the true king and his kingdom has begun. As Paul says, his reign is not yet complete, but it has begun. It did so in the death and the resurrection. That factual, not fantasy, fulcrum of history, which will activate the faith of his followers. 
In this passage this morning, we see the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are part of the Sanhedrin, the old ruling power, and it is giving way to the new. Mary is the one who Jesus delivered and healed, and she remains close to him throughout the entire ordeal, and she is shaken by the event. Peter and John, the rocky faith of the two who will become the pillars of the church. Something changed them all. Something real. Something ended and a new thing has begun. They're on the other side of the fulcrum. Christmas, we like Christmas, right? Parties, and a baby can't demand too much of us. Well, can, but in different sorts of ways. Christmas gets all the press and all the parties because we can make it about ourselves. The one who has come for us is replaced by personal consumption. But Easter is the true heart of Christianity. It is Easter that changes the disciples and it changes us. And I'm not particularly given to quoting from popes. I have some theological disagreements with them. But on Sunday, November 30th, 1986, Pope John Paul II was in Australia. And he was giving a homily. And he said this about Christianity. We do not pretend that all life, or that life is all beauty. We are aware of darkness and sin, of poverty and pain. But we know Jesus has conquered sin and passed through his own pain to the glory of the resurrection. And we live in light of his Paschal Easter mystery, the mystery of his death and resurrection. We are Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. It's amazing that we sang that this morning. I had no idea. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus change everything. Joseph and Nicodemus come out of the shadows. They had been secret followers of Jesus. Not anymore. Mary remains faithful in a bewildered state. Peter and John were clearly scared and confused. But what did they do? They came running. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed them all. And no two of them are in the same place. And the state of their faith and the expression of their faith are not the same. Luke tells us that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin who had not consented to the sham of the trial of Jesus. He was called a good and upright man waiting for the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. We met him in chapter 3, coming to Jesus at night compelled yet confused, scared of what others would say. He defended Jesus in chapter 7, demanding that the Sanhedrin actually do an investigation and give evidence and not simply condemn Jesus. And he was mocked for it. But now he's out in the open. 
Mary. We don't know a lot about Mary other than what Mark and Luke tell us. She followed and supported Jesus in Galilee along with several other women. She had been healed of seven demons. She is not the same Mary who, by the way, anointed Jesus, the sister of Martha. Some scholars believe that that number seven was important because it's the Jewish number from completion meaning that she was completely given over to the power of these demons, and Jesus healed her. And she is confused and heartbroken, but she has remained steadfast throughout, traveling with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem and staying there. She will become known as the apostle to the apostles because she is the first one to see Jesus after his resurrection, as we will see next week. She has and continues to bear witness to the healing power of Jesus even when she can't see where this is going next or how it works. Mary is steadfast. Peter, denier, shamed, yet first to run to the tomb. He's second to get there, but he's the first to go in to see that it's empty. Luke tells us he leaves confused But he is the first of the twelve to be there. John, he's faster than Peter, probably because he's got younger legs. That's my take on it anyway. Still, he's hesitant. He stops at the entrance, second into the tomb. He sees the evidence. The burial clothes are empty, but they haven't moved. Unlike the video, that linen cloth It's not folded up neatly. It's as if the body of Jesus simply went right through them. And he believes. But note verse 9 of chapter 20. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You see, none of us are in the same place when it comes to our faith. And these five eyewitnesses and participants in the greatest event in human history do not understand what they are seeing, what they are participating in. And that's okay. We do not have to have it all figured out and we don't all have to be in the same place because Jesus takes us where we are And in the power of his life and death and resurrection, he moves us to where we need to be if we let him. Because what John has shown us all along throughout his gospel is he's not going to demand that we believe. He's going to invite us to believe. We don't get all of the information right and pow, it all falls into place and we get everything right. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus invites us to join him. And we have seen that his word and his works are compelling. We may take two steps forward and another step back, but he is always there because he conquered. The death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changed my new friends, Afra and Khalil. Why? Because it had changed my friend Corey. And she listened when God said to her, 
Those are your new neighbors, and you would not believe the story of her family and the honor and shame culture they came from and Aphra as the shame bearer for her family through no fault of her own. And because Corey listened to what God said, and frankly because she helped her fill out an a visa application that she had no idea how to do and said, can I pray because I'm a Christian? It started a chain reaction of Afra following Jesus and witnessing to her fiancé in Germany who is now here and following Jesus because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it has done in one woman who decided to be faithful. It changed my friend Larry and I know that I will see him again because of the resurrection. And the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, has the death and resurrection of Jesus activated our faith? Have we allowed it to change us? Or is it still something stuck in that story mode in our brain of not quite real history? You see, this morning, as we close, I want us to think about this passage. To rest in the facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we do not have to worry about their reality. To recognize that the resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum of all of history. And to remember that our faith is not to be a passive thing in our heads, but an active thing that we live out. It is not about who we are or what we've done. It is about Jesus and what He has done for us. We are Easter people. The reign of Jesus Christ, our King, has begun. Our sins have been forgiven, and we have gained true life. And because of it, we can sing hallelujah.